And this is singlehood part two. And we call this lesson courtship and engagement, but more particularly being lesson number two, we call it the unequal yoke. And this is a very profound and necessary lesson for the body of Christ, especially in moving towards marriage. Marriage is to last a lifetime. That's why we say, till death do you part. Uh, That's why there's often a lot of talk of murder in marriage, because somebody wants to get out. And uh, we don't divorce. They ask uh, uh, Billy Graham's wife, did you guys ever talk about divorce? She said, no, but we did talk about murder a lot because they understood that was the only lawful way, not murder, but death. Uh, death was the only lawful way to get out of a biblical marriage. So this is the unequal yoke. You want to make sure you take every discretion possible before you get married because you don't want to marry the wrong person. Even in the perfect marriage, uh, there's going to be struggles and there's going to be tension and there's going to be humiliation and humility and forgiveness. And you want to make sure you do it right. So let's look at this, our, our curriculum. There's a lot to read here. Uh, I wanted to be able to write this so it could be studied on the individual's own without having to have explanation. So we're going to read a lot this morning. Bible standards to protect the young and totally naive. And isn't that most young lovers? Totally naive. Lovelorn believer. The Bible's kind enough to establish some very strict protocol. And let me remind you that the law is not the problem. Now, when you're lawless and you want to sin, you'll always quote the scripture the letter killeth. Yes, it can, but sin killeth also. So you have two opposite ends of the spectrum. The letter killeth, but so does sin. And the letter comes to keep you out of sin. So find the balance down the middle. These laws help reveal whom Christians have absolutely no permission from God to even be remotely interested in, much less fall in love with. And we covered in the previous lesson, lesson one, you can and must control who you fall in love with. It is one of the greatest lies and heresies of the modern day that I can't control my love. Even some of our great Christian personalities have, have said we, they support gay marriage because you can't control who you fall in love with. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You can control who and what you love. And the Bible dictates what we can and cannot love and what we must and must not hate. These protocols are given to keep us safe and keep us in the perfect will of God. And uh, I can tell you, I married the perfect will of God for my life. And there are times we have to repent to each other. There are times we have to sit down and talk things out. And there's times we say, well, we enjoy our marriage, but we're going to get better. We're going to get closer to that bullseye of God's will for marriage. So this brings us to the unequal yoke. Because the unequal yoke is one of the protocols the Lord gives us to help us find the perfect mate. The Mosaic Law contained many agricultural laws and guidelines. And now, 4,000 years later, you find out that many of those archaic, as the world calls it, Mosaic Laws are actually scientifically sound and very beneficial. Like the whole don't eat bottom feeders thing, no crustaceans. It's because they're not very clean or good for you. And Jesus knew that. Don't eat pigs. I mean, you can if you want, but they were very nasty animals. In fact, even to this day, if you hunt wild boar, they recommend you not eat them because they're full of parasites. But the Mosaic Law was protecting an ignorant class of slaves to keep them healthy. And it wasn't just being strict. It was being loving because Father knows best. And God's kids are often pretty ignorant. The Mosaic Law contained many agricultural laws and guidelines. And these laws weren't just meant for agrarian success. But they also contained symbolic insight into the kingdom of God, often emphasizing consecration and separation. Now, one of the... One of the laws uh, the pagans use, the pagan preachers use when they want to justify tattoos is it says there's a, there's a law that says don't sow your, seed with mi- uh, your field with mixed seed. 
Well, the whole purpose was cross-pollination or to prevent it. The other purpose was a symbol of consecration and separation. So I like to quote that in the context. Well, there's some, there's some pretty silly laws in that Levitical code, like, you know, don't wear garments of mixed linen and cotton and, and wool and, and don't cross-pollinate your field. And therefore, we can tattoo ourselves. Wow, that was, that was a big jump theologically. That, your hermeneutics is pretty lame. These laws are given on purpose. It is the divine will of God. And you cannot forget that Jesus Christ is the law. He is the word made flesh. Before he was born, the only law, the only flesh or word we had was the Old Testament. So every jot and tittle, every command is Jesus Christ. And it's all in there for a reason. And just because we're 2017 ignorant Christians, ignorant of cultural settings and science, doesn't mean it, it, it diminishes the law that God gave to his people. One of those laws was the forbiddance of mismatching beasts of burden when plowing. Deuteronomy 22.10 says, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. An ox, we know what an ox is, big. And we know what a donkey is, little. And there's a law in the Mosaic law here in, in Deuteronomy not to combine the two when plowing a field, which seems a little legalistic until you understand the smarts behind it. Biblically speaking, there's nothing wrong with either of these animals. This is not an issue of clean versus unclean. Remember, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not an ox. Plowing is hard enough when the animals are equal. So this law was given to increase plowing efficiency and to ease the burden on the animals due to the differences in their gait, their strength, their size, and their temperament. Everybody knows the donkey's reputation, right? Stubborn as a mule. Nobody says that about ox or oxen. And so this law was given because uh, it was to increase the efficiency and remove frustrations and burdens off of the Israelite farmers and to have mercy on the animals. Plowing is hard enough. You understand you put two animals together, sometimes a whole team of them yoked under a wooden yoke that often had leather and padding just to save the neck of the animal. And it's hard work plowing fallow ground, breaking up rocky ground. And you have an ox driver or, or a plow driver who's whipping or steering. And he's the one ha having to manually work the plow. And if these two are not equally yoked, you're not just having to fight rocks and dirt and the heavy weight of a plow, but you're having to fight two animals fighting each other. And often the ox, always being the stronger, is going to dominate, and they'll always pull to the left or pull to the right, and you won't get straight lines. So you can see the debacle here. To yoke these two vastly different animals together will produce numerous negative results. Now, we're talking about the unequal yoke, and our subject is marriage. So what kind of negative results? Number one, frustration for both animals, because you can see they're going to fight each other. The ox is stronger, taller, the, the donkey shorter, stubborner. Somebody's going to get drugged. And then there's going to be kicking. Ox aren't known for kicking. Donkeys are known for kicking. You can get five feet down your plow line and all of a sudden you have a dead animal. Number two, frustration for the driver. Because he has to deal with both of these. Number three, reduction in output and productivity. Because you're spending all your time fighting two unequally yoked animals. And therefore... Reduced harvest. Therefore, reduced prosperity. We might even add, therefore, starvation. We could throw that one in there. Number six, definite injury to one or both animals' necks. 
Now the neck in the Psalms and Proverbs, in the poetical books of the Bible, the neck is symbolic of the soul. Stiff-necked, um, uh, let grace be an ornament about your neck. We're talking about having a gracious soul. And so that's a, it's a allegory or a biblical symbol of the soul. So you have these two animals yoked together, but they're unequally yoked, and therefore it's a lot of pain on their soul. But literally you could see their neck because they're fighting each other, and you, you might could break an animal's neck or break an animal's soul. Number seven, mental and physical exhaustion for everyone involved, man and beast. And then number eight, I point out, are we talking about marriage or plowing? Because if you run back through this, if you're unequally yoked in your marriage, you're going to be, both be frustrated. God's going to be frustrated because you're not obeying him. That's, he's the driver. Uh, your output and productivity in life is going to be reduced because you're not equally yoked. And therefore, the harvest for God's kingdom is going to be reduced because you're spending all your time fighting and all your time working out your differences. There's room for that even in the best marriage. But if that's all you're doing, if after five years of marriage you're still fighting, you probably need to evaluate the fact that you either both need to grow up or you miss God. You can't undo it now. You just, you're going to have to succumb and recognize you're probably not going to live the rest of your life in the will of God as you could. And that's why we make a heavy emphasis on this during the singlehood state of every Christian's life. Reduced prosperity, reduced harvest, injury to both persons' souls, mental and physical exhaustion. Don't you know God can get frustrated with the marriage? Looking on our lives and seeing how we fight and bicker and quarrel and can't get along and we're both born again and yet we still can't get along. One man, actually it was Dr. Gary Smalley, he's probably the foremost Christian counselor, psychologist in the land, he after I read one of his books, which I would recommend to anybody that's married who's still having problems, uh, called Loving Each Other for Better or for Best. He wrote that book after counseling over 10,000 couples. That's a pretty big source of information. And his judgment as a Christian counselor and marriage therapist was if after five years of marriage there is still marital strife, it's the husband's fault. Because he either is not changing or is not leading. He blames the husband totally. And he says this lines up at the Bible because the husband leads. So it's, if you're having marital issues, I would recommend the book. It's about this thick. For those on listening, it's about two inches thick. It's probably six or seven, uh, 600 pages or so. But it is tremendous. And it's just full of wisdom to help marriages. More than we can go into in a 45-minute Sunday school on singlehood. So this law from God was given to ensure maximum efficiency, productivity, joy, and ease for everyone involved. Marriage is plowing the field for God because the two come together to produce greater results for God. One can put a thousand to flight, two can put 10,000. If one can plow an acre, two can plow 10,000 acres. We know we're working in God's garden as husband and wife, and that's the reason you get married because you're working in God's garden and you need more help. You don't get married because you're lonely. You don't get married because you're eager to have sex. You don't get married because you're needy. You get married because you're doing something for God and you need help doing more for God. And then all the benefits come after that. This law of Deuteronomy 22 is what Paul quoted in the famous passage on do not be unequally yoked together with non-believers. That's the law he's thinking of when he wrote that. Do not be bound or unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's New American Standard Version. But that is the famous passage where we get the term, don't be unequally yoked together. This is so critical. If the Bible says don't be unequally yoked, then you cannot, and you, don't, you can control your love for that person. You don't have to fall in love with someone who is not an equal yoke to you. You can pull your love and your heart off of people. And every one of us does it just typically inadvertently. It's why Ephesians 5 has to command the husband every day, husbands, love your wives. Well, you don't have to tell the honeymooner that. You have to tell the guy who's been married 20 years that. Love your wives. Because if you're not careful, your heart begins to disengage and become disinterested if you're not careful. And therefore, Ephesians 5 commands the husband every day, love your wife even as Christ loves the church. You do not have permission from God to love the unequally yoked person, the unbeliever, the pagan. Consider the words used above to describe whom a Christian must not fall in love with. Must not. You can control this. And I've underlined the characteristics that can be applied to Christians. Because here's the thing we need to understand. In this 2 Corinthians passage, Paul was not talking about those outside the church. In context, he was talking about the factions that were rising up within the Corinthian church. And he was pointing out that there were some in the Corinthian church who were passing themselves off as believers, but they were really siding with the false apostles Paul dealt with in the rest of the book of 2 Corinthians. They were false apostles that came in trying to split the church and pull the church to them. And that's why Paul went on to say, are they apostles in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 10, chapter 10? He said, I more so. This is what he's dealing with. This, this passage is not even talking about outside, outside pagans. So these terms can be applied to those in the church. Now, this is critical for single people that think just because they're born again and go to church, they're marriage material. And that's just not the case. Just because they're born again, go to church and speak in tongues doesn't mean they're worth marrying. Amen. So in this passage, you have the word unbeliever. That's the word perfidious. It means, it's also the Greek word apistos or apistos, which means deliberately faithless. I've underlined that because that would describe Christians I've pastored. Deliberately faithless. Unfaithful. That describes the Christians that don't come to church on Sunday night or Wednesday night. They're unfaithful, apistus, without faith, without the faith. Lawless, we're dealing in that age right now. We have some folks in our church right now that are lawless. They are selectively submitting. Therefore, you could not even be interested in them if you like them because the Bible won't permit you to. Lawless means one who lives apart from or mocks the law of God. Isn't that about half the body of Christ right now, mocking the law of God? Yeah. Dark or darkness. That's a metaphor. Of course, we're not talking about low light or dusk. Darkness. Someone without respect for divine things. Could that not be applied to Christians? Someone without respect for divine things is, is in darkness. You don't have permission to fellowship with them. The ungodliness and immorality that accompanies the ignorance of divine things. How about uh, Belial? This is a Hebrew word that's used. And this word just means worthless. I've known many Christians that that would describe. Worthless, good for nothing, base fellow. Uh, sometimes women fall in love with guys that are described by this. 
Why would you marry a worthless man? A base fellow. Good for nothing. Listen to mom and dad. If they tell you that boy is good for nothing, obey mom and dad. Wicked. Also a name for Satan. Idols, images of false gods. Uh, You don't bring images of false gods into the temple of God. Now consider, those those are terms you can study over and over. I want to get to the different kinds of unequal yokes that you can find among Christians. And that's where we got to spend most of our time this morning. But consider the way uh, Paul uses the Greek to describe how we get into union with these these words we just described. He says, um, this is what the Lord sees when you start to fellowship, fall in love, or date people who are unbelievers, lawless, darkness, belial, or idols. It says unequally yoked. Of course, that's our theme. But that word means to have fellowship with one who is not an equal. You have to fall in love with someone who is your spiritual equal. We'll cover that more in a few minutes. Someone who is your mental equal. I told one, one, uh, one person that was in love with another person, I said, if you marry this person, you're going to be taking care of them like a child the rest of your life. Do you want that? I take care of my wife, but not like she's a handicapped child. Some folks are just that weird and needy. If you marry them, you're not going to have a life. And maybe that's okay. Maybe that's what you want to do with the rest of your 50 years on earth is care for an adult like a handicapped child. I don't want that. I got to run, baby. You can't keep up. We're not dating. Thank God I've been married almost 10 years now. I don't have that problem anymore. I'm set. I'm good. <laughs> Partnership. This is a sharing, a partaker, participation. Whoever you're friends with, you are a participator with. You know, your friendships reveal what you permit and what you call good. Your friendships indicate to God what you permit and what you endorse. So you have to be very careful even what your friendships look like. Fellowship, association, communion, intimacy, partner, share, partaker. Harmony. Sometimes we start to get into harmony with these folks God doesn't permit us to. That word means to make a symphony. You guys are making music together and I don't think the Lord's pleased with it. So you have to be careful who you're playing instruments with, whose hearts you're singing with. Because it can grieve God. It's not a well-pleasing sound to Him. Agreement, concord, uh, what is shared in common. Or, again, we're looking at these words from 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. Or agreement, that means to vote together. Hence, to be approving, to make a deposit together. You have to be careful because the Lord is watching our lifestyles to see what we endorse. And you need to make sure that you endorse what God endorses and you curse what God curses and you don't mix the two up. Parents who have prodigal children fail God in this many times because they keep trying to save someone God himself can't save. And that's why you'll curse your life, trying to save someone when God has cast them off. If God casts them off, you have to cast them off. And until you do that, you're out of the will of God and your life will not advance. It's an idol. Trying to save someone God is not trying to save is an idol. The reason God, obviously God wants to save them. Obviously the mercy of God is out there, but that heart isn't turning. God's resisting them. If God's resisting them, you have no right to embrace them. If you're embracing them and God is resisting resisting them, it proves you don't hear from the Holy Spirit. Because when you're led by the Holy Spirit, you can only do what you see your father do. And if you go to embrace someone God's resisting, you'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I cannot embrace you. God himself does not embrace you right now. Repent. And don't you know maybe you obeying God would cause them to repent because they're recognizing that everybody that loves God is resisting them? 
and God is trying to paint a picture around them of repentance, except you're overriding God because you know better. Therefore, you're against God and you hate your child and you may all go to hell together. So it's always best to please the Father because Father knows best. He knows what he's doing. Amen. All right. Obviously, many of the above terms can be directly applied to Christians, even your kids. In its proper context, the 2 Corinthians 6 passage was written by Paul to help expose the true Christians from the fake Christians in the local church of Corinth. And that's almost every church. You have true Christians and you have baloney Christians. I love Jesus, baloney. I'm submitted to Jesus, baloney. I want to serve God, baloney. Baloney Christians. As one commentary noted concerning this passage, Paul's plea was for a pure congregation divorced from the sins of society, whether in the lives of pagans about them or in the professing believers in their fellowship. I read that and I think, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get a pure congregation free from the effects of society, even the lukewarm baloney Christians in our midst. In other words, this passage wasn't just written to warn us about relationships with pagans, but also relationships with dirty or questionable Christians. Everybody that goes to church isn't going to heaven. And the more we get closer to the rapture or the end times, the apocalypse, the consummation of all things, the more we're going to watch Christians depart from the faith and still stay in the local church because it's all they know. It's all they know, but God doesn't know them. And yet they know our lingo, they know the culture, they can fit right in because they've become a tear or a goat. But the Holy Ghost knows the difference. And if you are led by the Spirit of God, you'll be able to recognize something's just not jiving there. And you can begin to move away as the Spirit of God leads you. Beyond the obvious unequal yoke of dating, courting, and loving a total pagan non-believer. That's a, that's a gimme. Let me add there, we don't missionary date. And I think we're all familiar with the term. Missionary dating is when you fall in love with somebody and you date them to try to save them. Or you date her to try to save her. Or you think, I'll date them and they'll get us on fire for God as me. Never will happen. Never in a million years will happen. Because you're just barely catching on fire for God. They don't even know how to spell God. And you're helping your little lukewarm fire can set them ablaze for Jesus Christ. Never going to happen. We do not promote missionary dating. It's a, it's a violation of God's word. We don't even really necessarily believe in missionary friendships of the opposite sex. Because there's too much emotion and sexual tension that can arise there. Amen. Trying to keep young people out of bad marriages. There are other forms of uneven yoking that can take place even when marrying a Christian. We must look at these if we are to hear the voice of wisdom crying out. But first, let's look at the, uh, the, look at the first hurdle of picking a spouse. 1 Corinthians 7.39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. Notice even in Corinthians, you're still under the law mosaic at that the law that says you don't get to divorce for any old reason you're bound as long as they're alive and that's maybe why miss graham talked about killing billy graham because <laughs> she knew the word of god no that was a joke and i'm sure they did talk about it but they were married all their lives until she went home to heaven but if her husband be dead she is at liberty to marry be married to whom she will she can marry who she wants who she wants, but only in the Lord. All right? 
This verse establishes the fact that free will plays a part in our marriage selection. But there is still a rule. They, can, they must be in the kingdom. They must be serving God. They must be in the Lord. We might could stretch that doctrinal interpretation to say they must be actively serving God in the Lord. You know, I don't think it just means being saved. There's a lot of scoundrel Christians out there. Why would you want to marry them? So you can go to church by yourself? Yeah, I wouldn't want to go to church by myself. Now, if you're married and you're going to church by yourself, no condemnation. Pray. Pray them. Pray them convicted. You're a walking distributor of the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. Pray them convicted when you lay in bed next to them. But I'm trying to help single folks who are going to settle so they can have something easy. And now, because they're lusty or they're impatient or they know better than God. This can't and shouldn't be the only criteria you consider when preparing for courtship and marriage. The believer-non-believer is the greatest unequal yoke possible, but other unequal yokes can exist as well. And that's what we want to cover. That's, this was, that was all my foundation to spend the next 20 minutes showing you these five major areas of unequal yokes when you're looking at Christian mates. Just because someone is a born-again, church-attending Christian doesn't mean they are marriage material. Trust me, I pastor born-again church attenders. And I look at some and I say, never going to be the kind of guy who marries my girls. Never going to be the kind of guy that marries my girls. And I pastor them. Or I go, I go to conferences with them. So just because they're born again and go to church does not mean they're marriage material. Natural wisdom looks, knows to look for red lights when it comes to relationships. Uh, in his invaluable book, 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged, H. Norman Wright challenges the dreamy-eyed Christian with a reality check and wake-up call. There's 101 questions he puts in that book. That's why it's called 101 Questions to Ask. And all those are designed to find the red light, the unequal yoke. In fact, the whole book is written to get you to call off your engagement. And if you still get to the end of that book and you're like, we still love each other, we still believe that this is the will of God, then you've jumped through a lot of hurdles and you've got to really believe it or just really be stupid one. Either it's the will of God or you're just determined to sin against God and you just went through the perfunctory role of reading a book. In fact, countless volumes on relationships, marriage, and courtship have been written by pastors, counselors, and Christian psychologists, all in an attempt to draw attention to unequal yokes. And I make this point because many Christians do, in fact, get dangerously legalistic and say, well, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is the believer. It's an equal yoke. But yet Christians, pastors, psychologists, and counselors have written hundreds and hundreds of books trying to warn Christians that just because she's a Christian doesn't mean she's safe to marry. Or just because he goes to church doesn't mean he's the one God has for you. The wisdom is out there saying being born again is not enough of a criteria to marry. Having a pulse, a pulse, warm blood and a paycheck and going to church does that not mean they are marriage material. I establish that because we want to take that one verse and say, they're a Christian, they're not a pagan, they're safe to marry. No, no, there's so many different ways you could be unequally yoked where she can be the ox and you can be the donkey, or you're the ox and she's the donkey. And God wrote that law to make it easier on everybody in life because what you have to do in marriage is hard enough as it is. Amen. Simply put, just because two people are going to heaven doesn't mean they are a match made in heaven. 
You need to let that one sink in. Recall the Mosaic law against unequal yokes was due to the differences in the animal's gait. That's a person's walk with Christ, their hunger, their doctrine. It was due to the animal's differences in strength. That's a person's spiritual and emotional maturity. Differences in size. That's a person's calling in the kingdom. You know, I, I have a call of God on my life to do what we do. Not every woman could keep up with that. And if she can't keep up with that, the calling has to suffer because my obligations to my wife. That's why you have to wait for the one God has because he designed you and he designed her or him and he knows how well you fit together. What about the animal's temperament? That's a person's personality or disposition. These are areas of unequal yokes even in Christians' lives, not just animals. If you want to be a little crude about it, we're God's beast of burden. We're to plow the field for him. He uses us to bear fruit. And we glorify him when we do bear fruit. If all we do is marry the wrong person and plow in circles, you'll have crop circles. And you probably won't get much fruit out of it because it'll be hard to harvest. These same differences affect a husband and wife's ability to plow together. So the yoke of faith and doctrine, here's the first one I see. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together except they be in agreement? That makes sense. Doctrine's the set of teachings we live by. If the two of you have different core doctrinal beliefs, who's going to give up their doctrine? What about the doctrine of salvation? Some people believe you've got to be catechized and, and baptized in the Catholic Church and or, or sprinkled. What about water baptism? What about speaking in tongues? I don't really believe a tongue talker should ever marry a non-tongue talker. Because the non-tongue talker believes in non-tongue talking more than the tongue talking believes in tongue talking. What did you guys find in common? One of you will give up and it's usually going to be the one that has more of God because that's how it always works. If you get married and she's still not speaking in tongues, what have you been doing? Not evangelizing her in the full gospel. I would never fall in love with a non-spirit-filled Christian. It's not going to work. Now, if you're dating her and all of a sudden she gets spirit-filled, that might be a little bit more of a green light to proceed forward. But that's such a core critical doctrine to what we believe. It's not just what we believe, it's truth. It's not something we can split doctrinal hairs on. It just is what it is. And we don't just believe it in the now and in the future. We demonstrate it every day of our lives. And so... If you marry from different denominations, what church will you attend after you wed? And who's, which one of you is going to give up your core doctrinal beliefs? Every time I've seen this, the lukewarm Christian always wins. The weaker of the two always wins. The weaker of the two always wins. I've seen people get married in this church and then leave for the lesser church. Always. How about the yoke of spiritual hunger? Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Our lives rise and fall based on our hunger level for God. When we're hungry, our lives are blessed and it swells. When we get full of God and we don't want anymore, our lives take a dip and we suffer for it. Potential mates should be equally yoked in the area of spiritual hunger. That's also why we teach in singlehood, one, you should meet in the house of God, preferably the same garden, the same flavor of Christianity. Maybe even the same denomination. Two Baptists marrying would be a lot better off than a Baptist and a Pentecostal marrying. Because they'll always be in agreement and they'll serve God together. And maybe they can both get spirit-filled together. 
Potential mates should be equally yoked in the area of spiritual hunger. If you want to move to Borneo and evangelize the cannibal pygmies, and there are cannibal pygmies in Borneo, don't settle for a narcissistic Facebook diva whose Christianity is just what she puts on Facebook, you know, always having to post pictures of her Bible study, always with a cappuccino, always with nine filters on it, not the cappuccino, the picture. That's not a Christian woman. That's, a, that's an insecure diva. She probably has 30 f- selfies of herself as well. You'll never leave the suburbs marrying that kind of woman because that's all she wants out of God is her life. Consequently, if you're hungry to help build the local church and host Bible studies, don't marry sports fanatic. You'll be serving God alone because on Sundays he'll be bass fishing, watching NASCAR, or being at an uh, NFL game. Hungry marriages are filled and blessed. Satiated marriages, that means you're not hungry. They are empty and troubled. Man, you've got to get over the looks and the attention they give you. you you've, you've, got to, uh, you've got to let God pick and choose this. You've got to set a standard so high for that potential mate, only God himself can find them and bring them to you. That's what you have to do. Set that standard so high, only God can do it. And then you say, Lord, here's the standard your word gives me, and you said it's not good, I'm alone. I'm alone. Lord, with all due respect, what are you going to do about it? Lord, I'm serving you, but I could serve you better if I had a spouse. And here's my standard, and I'm alone. And your word says I shouldn't be alone, and you'll supply my needs. And I need a spouse, not because I'm needy, not because I'm lusty, not because I'm lonely, but because I need help serving you better. That's how it's supposed to be done. Amen. How about the yoke of emotional, mental, and spiritual maturity? I see this one flawed a lot. Romans 12, 2 says we ought to all be renewed and transformed by the renewing of our mind. Titus 2 says uh, young men should be sober-minded. It just all talks about maturing in your person, maturing in your mind, maturing in your mindset, maturing in your spiritual walk. This one's very, very critical. Marriage is a union between two best friends, but they have to understand the unique and different roles that the husband and the wife are going to play together. Because marriage is not about self. It's about the other person. You need to marry someone on your emotional and mental level. You know, we, we all know it's a total perversion when a 55-year-old man marries a 25-year-old. Even the world looks at that and goes, ooh. Even the world made a big deal when the new prime minister of France is 25, 30 years younger than his wife. And that was his teacher. If you didn't know that, the new Macron, uh, prime minister Macron, his wife is 25 or so years older than him. He's younger than me. She's in her 60s. Ooh. All I can say is ooh. And not a 60-year-old woman on this planet I find attractive. Not even just in the physical. Hey. <laughs> Much less want to marry. Something's wrong with that. Don't marry the man you'll always have to mother or coddle. Don't marry the woman, the needy woman, you'll always have to father and babysit. Some individuals are drawn to the fixer-upper. Some folks are just broken like that. They always want to date somebody who's messed up because they like solving problems. That's a fool's errand. Amen. Ooh. Never marry a fixer-upper. Marriage is meant to be a relationship of outflow and life, not introversion and energy drain. When you marry a a perpetual fixer-upper, you're going nowhere for God except to take care of her or him like, like a handicapped spouse or a disabled child. 
And if you have that option, that's not what you want to do to build the kingdom. Nothing against the handicapped individual or the disabled individual. You understand that. But if you're free and you're seeking God's will to build the kingdom, you're not going to marry that weird, needy, introverted, messed up individual who can't even walk with Jesus Christ to get themselves out of a wet paper bag situation. Also, there is the subject of spiritual maturity. Don't fall for someone significantly less spiritually mature than yourself. The Bible uses the term a newly planted one or a novice. You don't marry a novice. You've been born again serving God 20 years. You don't marry the girl that just got saved last month, no matter how cute she is. You've been serving God your entire life, sweetie, and kept your virginity from your youth, and, and you've honored God. You're not going to marry the guy that just gave his life at a crusade a year ago. He's not been proven. It would be very unwise for a seasoned and battle-tested Christian to fall in love with a new convert whose faithfulness to Christ has yet to be proven. You want to make sure you fall in love with someone whose walk with Jesus Christ is proven. And though they may fall seven times, that's what Proverbs prophesied, the righteous falleth seven times and gets right back up. Someone who's newly in the faith, you don't know what, what kind of ground they are yet. The, the seed has been sown are they about to spring up but be stony ground? Are they about to spring up and be thorny ground? Are they about to spring up and be cares of the world ground? Are they going to spring up and bear some 30, some 60, some 100 fold? You want to find that man or woman of God that's bearing fruit. Because if they're already bearing fruit, they've got a track record. You've got to date somebody and know their track record. Just because they've been coming to your church six months doesn't mean they have a track record yet. How about the yoke of personality? This is a critical one. Folks don't want to acknowledge this because love makes people blind. It sets this fog upon them called stupid. Amen. Love is in the air. No, that's called stupid fog. <laughs> You're just bumping into everything. Just love. Much of our personality is part of our God-breathed life. Each one of you is vastly different, and that's part of the spirit being that God breathed into you. You pastor long enough, go through life long enough, you recognize there's only so many different personality types. It's just, you just see it. And then there's only so many different ways to sin and corrupt that. Naturally, our personalities must be balanced and polished to remove the world's corruption. We get that. But unfortunately, some personalities will simply not work together. And you have to acknowledge that as well. Marrying someone in hopes of changing them is a fool's errand. You don't marry somebody hoping to change them. If God can't change them, you're not going to change them. Not even you and God can change them. I give my judgment and wisdom here, so I qualify that. Because this has been my observation and, and my testing over and over again now. And not just pastoring for 10 years, but also serving God in the kingdom for going on 22, 20, 23 years now. Here's my wisdom. A woman should always marry a man with a stronger personality than hers. Always, always, always. For a woman to have a stronger personality than her, than her spouse is to doom the marriage to a lifetime of plowing in circles. It's just going to happen. Why? The stronger personality will always dominate. It's designed to. Nothing wrong with a woman having a strong personality. The part of that is the God-breathed design in her. But she's got to be smart enough to recognize I need someone strong enough to wrangle this thing in. Nothing wrong with having a big engine. You just don't put like a 900 horsepower Corvette engine in a go-kart. Because the go-kart cannot handle it. We, did, uh, we went down on the bayous a couple years ago, and we went on the airboats. 
And um, the airboats have four and 500 horsepower. I mean, they're impressive. And we walked past this one boat that was big, and I could tell it was a big engine. I said, how big is that engine? He said, that, that's the fastest boat on the bayou. We're outside New Orleans, mind you. So he said, that's 900-something horses on a fan on a skiff-bottom boat. We didn't get to ride that one that day. But what we did ride was fast enough. Going 60 miles an hour on top of water, and that boat can turn on a dime and skip, and it's top-heavy, more than enough speed for me. But you wouldn't drop that 980-horsepower engine in a Yugo, which for those of you that are under 35 is a small Yugoslavic car that was big in the 80s that fit in your back pocket. You didn't, wouldn't drop that in a Yugo, and you don't drop a strong woman's personality in this meek, timid little sissy man. He deserves a wife. He can't handle her, though. Amen. The stronger personality will always dominate because it's designed to. There's nothing wrong with a woman having a strong personality as long as she knows how to temper it. And honestly, in our church, I have a strong personality. I've never met a woman I could not arm wrestle mentally or in leadership terms. And anybody that saw that I was going to lead, they always left. The Jezebel always left. Any, we have lots of strong-willed women here. I have no problems with them. They have no problems with me because I'm stronger. And that's how it should be in the marriage. You should always be mindful. Honey, I like you. We're dating, but you are way stronger than me. This ain't going to work. We got to kill this thing now. Otherwise, hear me clearly. You will always plow in circles. Always. And that's not the will of God. A, ma- a woman married to a man with a weaker personality will inevitably live a life defined by frustration and heartache. Possibly heartache. Women, don't marry someone you have to lead. That is not biblical. It is not the woman's job to lead. Don't even date someone you have to teach how to lead. That's you mothering and coddling. That's never worked. I've never seen that work. Don't allow yourself to fall in love with the man whose personality is weaker than yours. Men, you should be able to lead and be worth following. That's critical. That was my wife's two cents. She said, say this. Tell the men they got to learn how to lead and then be worth following at the same time. All right. How about this last one? The yoke of ministry calling. This may be one of the most important yokes to consider. Folks often don't do that. And again, some of you are already married. You've been married 20, 30 years. Maybe you're saying, I wish I'd had this 20, 30 years ago. We can't do anything about that now. I have to raise the standard for the next generation that's going to bring in the climax of the Lord Jesus Christ, the climax of the ages, the rapture, the end time move of the Antichrist. So the standard's constantly getting higher. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the will of God, the, the knowing of God is progressively revealed from faith to faith. Here it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. We looked at recently in one of our services that Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess. But she had absolutely zero Bible in her day to know how a prophetess should operate. But she was still a prophetess. But God was able to work around her ignorance to do some things for him. And we're having the things of marriage and the standard of God revealed progressively so that in these last days we can have the best marriages ever to produce the best children ever who can do on, go on to do a greater work ever. And that's why we do this. So don't beat yourself up. Say, hey, we're honoring God and God's blessing us. If you perceive you have a full-time ministry calling upon your life, you must be even more careful in your selection of a spouse. The demands of ministry are not easy to bear. And your spouse must be capable of sharing part of that burden and even sharing you with God's people. That's often very hard on the minister's spouse to share their spouse. Jealousy can set in very easily 
when he gets up at 2 a.m. to go help somebody or he has to stay after church late or the crusade calls him away for a month or two at a time. You have to be careful because if the spouse is not in agreement, the ministry call has to take a back seat because the Bible teaches marriage comes before ministry. And it's many a spouse that limits their husband's calling or their wife's calling. In fact, probably marriage is the number one reason why folks won't fulfill the call of God on their life. When marriage is the number one tool given to fulfill the call of God on their life. When you marry a dysfunctional husband or wife, you're going to cripple yourself the rest of your life. By dysfunctional, we mean unwilling to grow, unwilling to mature, unwilling to, unwilling to get the victory. Because biblically speaking, the marriage covenant comes before the ministry calling. So if you're free, as Paul called it, Paul called singlehood being free. Think about that. If you're free... You take your time. You don't marry someone that's going to hinder the will of God for your life. That's why even Paul said, I give my judgment. He said, I think it's better to stay single because then you're not limited. That's 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Your spouse must be capable. If you're a female minister, marrying a man with a ministry calling is ideal. If you're a female minister, marrying a man who's also called is ideal. I've never seen a female minister in a marriage with a non-minister husband succeed for very long. I used to know a few. None of them are in ministry anymore because it just never works. Uh, For the woman to take the lead is unbiblical. For the woman to teach the husband, according to Corinthians, is unbiblical. I don't have a problem sitting down and letting my wife teach me from the pulpit from time to time, but she doesn't steer the home. She doesn't steer the ministry. Uh, You get into some very controversial topics, especially in this post-feminist society, even among spirit-filled churches. But I'm sorry, I I got way more scripture than your American culture can cough at. So it just isn't ideal. You you do have female leaders in the Bible, Deborah, Esther. You have Abigail, but she was submitted to both her husband, the churlish man, Nabal, and David. You have Aquila and Priscilla, but that's only four. Mary Magdalene. Maybe five. Five out of how many male leaders in the Bible? So you see the percentage of success is very, very slim and often only because there was no other choice. Now there's a big movement right now to make a doctrine out of female leaders leading everything because of Aquila and Priscilla in the Gospels and the Epistles, or the Acts and the Epistles, because Aquila is always mentioned before her husband, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is always mentioned before her husband, Aquila. But simply because you have one example of a husband and wife team, they're always mentioned together, does not give you the precedent to say women should run everything. That's a progressive liberal doctrine coming into the church. How about Jezebel? She was a leader. She went to hell eaten by dogs. In fact, the prophecy was dogs will defecate you out into the field. That's what the Lord said. You're not just going to die. Dogs are going to eat you and you're going to become dung. And that was her end. And that dog probably had worms. (laughs) Weeping and gnashing of teeth where your worm never perishes. (laughs) Only God knows what the private conversations of the female minister and the non-female husband are like in private. Likewise, if you're a man with a ministry calling, your fiancé needs to know the fullness of your vision and heart way before you fall in love. I think this is pretty evident stuff. So let's look real quick as we conclude. The yoke of faith and doctrine, you got to be equal there. The yoke of spiritual hunger, you got to be equal there. 
The yoke of maturity, you got to be equal there. The yoke of personality, you got to be equally yoked in your personalities. The yoke of a ministry calling, there has to be an equal fit there. Otherwise, you'll be like the ox and the donkey who are fighting, kicking, hee-hawing, braying, snorting at each other. And the whole time, the driver, who is God Almighty, is just as frustrated as the two animals. And at some point, the two animals say, just kill me. I mean, just let them run it. I mean, I can't handle it. Just somebody kill me, which is often what frustration sounds like in marriage. And then the devil comes in and starts talking to you about that pretty girl or that handsome guy on the job, the one that treats you kindly. Amen. Marriage is to last a lifetime till death do you part. And you don't get to determine when that is. (laughs) Don't settle for an unequal yoke, no matter how pretty, handsome, or sweet the candidate may be. Take time to find God's will. You have to do that. He designed you and he knows who he has in store for you. Amen. All right. I think that will suffice. feel pretty good about that lesson trying to give all the wisdom and experience I've got into these lessons to help the next generation have a blessed, beautiful future together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this lesson, for these truths, for the wisdom contained herein. Father, I ask you to have mercy upon all of our single folks. They have some of the biggest decisions to make and often the least amount of wisdom possible to make it. Help our young single folks and even our older single folks to find the spouse you have for them And may they glorify you in a beautiful marriage. Bless all those that listen to these lessons in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.